welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. It is Friday, January 19th. Yes, I was late. Yes, I was doing a test live on the air. Um, it's been a crazy week. We are here live. It is time for trucking technology and efficiency and a Friday free-for-all. Jump in and join us. I'm not sure how long things are going to hold up out here. I had to run to the farm at the last minute this morning because uh, I was out here late last night trying to take care of things and get the driveway plowed again, and I forgot all of my equipment out here. I thought I would have been doing the show from home this morning, but I got up, and I got up late because I was tired, and uh, realized I didn't have any of my equipment. So I had to drive out here to the farm, and I'm still driving around with chains and auto socks on, and... uh, the snow just will not stop. Back home, everything is frozen because we got snow and then last night it turned to rain again. So we have multiple levels of snow, then frozen rain, then snow, then frozen. Uh, when Diesel and I tried to go out this morning, we looked like a Laurel and Hardy routine. It was, it's hard to even describe what's going on. We've probably got, um, I don't know, uh, a foot of um, precipitation on the ground in multiple layers and multiple forms. It, it Part of um, the driveway in the back of our house, I'm walking on two feet of snow and it's solid ice on the top. You don't even leave a mark. Diesel was trying to get back to the house and couldn't make it. He kept sliding. I was trying to help him and I kept falling over. And then... Uh, I fell over a couple more times trying to get out to my car so I could get here. I'm here. I think everything's working right. Um, we'll see when I go to take a phone call. Um, I can say this. I am uh, very impressed with the auto socks. They, uh, they've saved me many, many times. They're easy to put on. I've got a set of auto socks on the, uh, I use them on the front of the FJ and then I put chains on the back of the FJ because I use that to pull people out. And then on the Range Rover, I just put auto socks all the way around it. And I've got a set of auto socks on the front of the FJ, I bet they're 10 years old. And I put a brand new set on the Range Rover this year. And one trip around the neighborhood just to get them on and fitted and test them, and I tore one up. I must have caught the elastic on some ice, because we got a lot of ice, and it just cut the elastic, so now it won't, that one won't stay on. Brand new. And on, on the other hand, I've got a set that's almost 10 years old, and I've been driving back and forth to the farm, a 40-mile round trip with them on, and they're still holding up. So um, they are worth having in a vehicle in the wintertime. Even if you carry chains, if you go through passes and you're going to carry chains, I would still have a set of auto socks for those times when it's just icy or you're stuck and you need a little help. They're so easy to put on Uh, and they're easy to carry around. They don't take up much space or any weight. So I'm pretty impressed with mine. I've been using auto socks for a lot of years. They've uh, certainly come in handy all right um i i'm not sure who's joining me today as far as guests um joel henry john alec i haven't heard anything yet but we've got calls coming in so 
Uh, oh, the other thing at home, we still do not have our home internet working. The, the fiber we normally use at home has been out, I don't know, three or four days now. Uh, it's a good thing we've got the uh, Starlink. I've been using the Starlink both at home and out here at the farm to do the show, and it's, uh, it's holding up well, even with all this ice and snow. The, um, the dishes are heated, so I don't even have to mess with the ice and snow on the dishes because uh, they just keep it all melted nice. All right, let's get to some phone calls. Find out what's on your mind today. Let's get started in Texas. Mark, welcome to the program. Tom, the guinea pig. Hey there. What's on your mind? Can you hear me? I can. Okay, I said, I said, am I the guinea pig today? You are the guinea pig, and it seems to be working. I'm kind of shocked. Excellent. Okay. Well, last night I was listening to a podcast on YouTube. It has to do with car hauling, but they were talking about brokering and this, that, and the other. And the you know, same, same complaints that everybody else has or whatever, but more about the brokering, the fraud that's in the, the brokering end of transportation these days. So one of the things that I was like thinking about, I'm like, there seems to be a problem with brokers and carriers qualifying their customer. They always seem to get a hold of these people that are out scamming. And that, it's, I, I just think it's a problem with not qualifying and attention to detail. Years ago, when I worked for Penske, the, the general manager, he was big on qualifying customers. I mean, it's like if you... If you he had certain people you were you were forbidden to rent to because you know he he's like you know you you qualify your customer and you know can they pay the bills because there's no sense in doing the work if they're not going to pay the bills and some of these people out there that are, are they're doing the scamming they don't have much of a track record and it doesn't take much research to research a customer if you've never had this customer before. You know, because they were talking about, well, you got to take a picture on the car and send it to the broker before they release it to make sure they know it's you. I'm like, really? Yeah. <laughs> You're not even qualifying your customers. You, you, you know? bring up it's a like, really good point. I agree with you that, first off, one of the things we have to remember about this issue is it went from being a small problem, a very tiny percentage of loads, and over the last year or two, it has exploded. There's no doubt about it. And one of the things we have to remember is we don't prepare for something that isn't a problem until it becomes a problem. This became a big problem in the last year or two. So now we all need to react and figure out how to fix this. But you are correct that if, if we use the model we always talk about here, don't just go on random load boards and try to find the best rate every time and work with 30 or 40 or 50 brokers a year. Get a couple of good brokers, build a relationship, try to get the majority, if not all of your freight from them. And a lot of these issues go away. You don't have to, after you've worked with them, you know they pay their bills, you know they're legitimate. You don't have to keep checking that. Do the homework up front. Be careful in the beginning. Don't let them get too deep into you. Before you know it, you've got a relationship and all this goes away. It's interesting that the, the group, um, NOA or whatever the hell their name is, um, they're screaming about broker transparency. They want more rules. They, the brokers are the problem. I had those guys screaming at me. The broker is not our customer. They were screaming that. 
And okay, you can look at it all you want like that, but you are the problem. And then you're going to scream that there's all this broker fraud, but you're making it easy for the brokers to commit that fraud. Treat them like your customer, whether you believe they are or not. I mean, I don't understand how anybody in business can say, the person who pays me is not my customer. I, I don't understand that logic, but that's how they feel because they don't, they hate brokers. They don't want a relationship with them. They don't want the broker to be their customer. So they just deny reality. And in essence, they are the problem. They are the problem. That's the, that's the number one problem right there. So they do not qualify their customer. They're not suspicious. They don't think, well, this person pay me. Look, you can do the work, but are you going to get paid? Right. Go pull the load. Oh, no, you get paid. Uh, it, you, you, didn't do the, you didn't qualify your customer, and it was uh, an illegal load or whatever. Always be until you know who you do business with. Always. I mean, because you're out there to make money. You're not out there to just pull it around for nothing and then, oops, and you can get paid, you know, because, you know, there's fraud involved. Always be suspicious, and they're not suspicious. And and then the broker will, some of these brokers will just give a load to anybody. They don't qualify the trucking company. So I, I blame both of them on that behalf. Now, you Absolutely. had broker, remember when you had Broker Connect, there was a handful of people that came on there, and I'm like, I don't even do business with these people, but I would be calling those people trying to do business with them. I Re mean, I still remember this one guy who said he had trailers that he would pull, you could go to Laredo and go here and go there, and he was begging for people. But I wonder, I wonder how many people, you know, went, went and followed up on that because it, was, it wasn't my line of work, but I sure would have. You, you know, know he, he was begging for people to he was begging for people to to, to start a relationship with him. We we tracked that so, when we were doing Broker Connect, and lots of good relationships were built from that show. The good news is it's coming back. Broker Connect will we should do our first Broker Connect within the next month. We're bringing that show back. It's going to be a, a regular monthly show again, um, just for that exact reason. Uh, by the way, Joel's here with us. Joel, good morning. Hey Kevin, how you doing? Uh, uh, good. I was I was late to work today. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've been dragging here the last thousand or so miles. It's been a long two weeks. We run a run eleven thousand miles in the last two weeks, and I'm I'm ready to get home. That that had to be you. You can't possibly have managed to avoid all the bad weather during that time. <laughs> no, the last uh, the last couple thousand miles have been have been. Uh, Pretty challenging to say the least. I'll bet. But hey, real quick on your your broker stuff here. So you know, my family's been in trucking for a long, long time. And you know, back when when we were me and my younger brother were really getting started uh, on our own in the late '80s, early '90s. I mean, we got smoked all the time by people. So this is <laughs> nothing new. <laughs> yeah, this is nothing new at all. Now, it may be more prevalent right now, but what your caller is saying is, is exactly right. Do your homework. So, you know, one of the things that I've learned, and you have seen this, is I was dealing with a direct customer, a smaller customer. I thought the economy was going to slow down. I said to myself, you know, look, if I get into these people and they close the doors, I'm going to go down. Yeah. So the rates are great. I love the work, but there's some risk here that I'm not willing to take right at the moment. So I went to Schneider. Are the rates as good as my direct customer? No, 
but they pay instantly. I know I'm getting paid, and I don't have to worry about any of this broker fraud nonsense. I just deal with Schneider. Now, when things start to turn again, um, you know, we're talking about adding a couple of trucks. You know, I'll probably keep a truck or two on with Schneider, and I will work some opportunities I have with direct customers going forward. I think I'll always have a percentage of my trucks running in that safe zone, so to speak. Not the highest paying freight in the world, but it is absolutely rock solid. And, you know, there's there's something to be said about the safety part of it. You can't always just be chasing rates, especially when you're small and you can't absorb the hit. And that was my fear was, I'm in a specialty furniture company, was my direct customer. If something happened to them, I could easily be in $25,000 to them just on one round. And then what happens? You know, that that's such a good point. There's so many things I want to comment on that. And also understanding your freight and your freight being furniture does not do well in a down economy. People people will I, not I, buy new yes. <laughs> furniture when the, their bills aren't being paid and they're struggling. The old furniture will do just fine. So it, it's furniture is kind of one of those luxury items that, that take a big hit in a down economy. You're 100% right, and, and I recognize that. And, you know, I, I, I said, look, my brother's running 100 trucks. He can go over there and run that stuff. He can take a $25,000 hit and just shrug it off. It's right. not a big deal to him. As a single truck operator, I'm Ugh. not taking a $25,000 hit. It's just not happening. No way. And, and so you, you, you've got to understand your place in the marketplace. And, you know, as much as I love doing that work as a driver, I love the lanes, I love the people, I loved everybody I worked with, it was just too much of a risk going into what looked to me like a, a down economy. And well, I just I wasn't willing to do it. And, and here's so why. I, I ran to safety, and it, it has worked out. And here's why you have the ability to see that and make a better decision, because you are not solely focused on the top line. It's all we hear these people ever talk about. Oh, I'm not pulling for less than this. This is my rate. All they ever talk about is the top line. And if that's all they're looking at, they miss all the nuance. You're looking at the bottom line saying, yeah, this freight might pay rent. Freight might pay better today, but this is dangerous freight in a bad economy. I'm going to go take a lower rate to be consistent, keep the revenue coming in. I'll work on my expenses. I, that makes so much sense to me, and it just shocks me how few people can understand such a simple concept or not understand such a simple concept. They don't have the ability to do a risk assessment. Yeah, they don't even uh, that, think that, about that it. That is true. They don't assess risk, and... It is shocking to me how you are just vilified and crucified for playing what I just done. Right. I had so many people just, well, oh, you're an idiot. That's a direct customer. What the hell are you doing? And, and well, you know, and it, it was simple risk assessment. I, I was not in a position, just starting the business, having to throw out a bunch of cash, getting stuff up and running, then with a direct customer that may be susceptible to a down economy, no way in hell you can do that. Well, well uh, Joe, at least not in my Joel, opinion you can. I, I wasn't willing to take that risk. Joel, you, you have to understand, though, that, that by going over there to Schneider and pulling that cheap freight, you're part of the problem. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I know. I, I hear it all the time. But, you know, I, honestly, we have made some very, very good connections over here. I am glad that we've done it. You know, as things start to turn around uh, and I've got some opportunities coming, um, I'm going to maintain the relationship with these people. It's my customer. They have been good to me. Uh, is it the highest rates on the planet? No. Are they crappy rates? No. There are some on their load board, but you don't have to take them. That's right. Um, you know, what we've done has worked very, very well. And, you know, this is going to be kind of my backstop going forward. Uh, say, for example, if I've got 10 trucks running, three of them are probably going to be doing the Schneider Power only stuff. That makes sense. Um, that way, if, if something happens with the direct customer, you're not standing there going, now what the hell do I do? Right. You know, it, it's very easy. You have that established relationship. At least you keep things moving. I watched my brother go through this three times. And, you know, just before the downturn came, he was talking about diversification. He's like, you know, I, I'm, I'm into some customers. They're great customers. They pay their bills and everything, but they're eating up X percentage of my total capacity, and it's more than I'm comfortable with. So diversification and risk assessment are something we never hear anybody talk about, period. And it's probably two of the most important things that you can be doing, especially as an individual owner-operator where everybody's just chasing rates and the, the risk. And it's, it's crazy. You know, another area that, that goes right along with this, and we do talk about it, I've talked about it many, many times, when the, when the rates are peaked and, you know, you can find good freight in your sleep, like a couple of years we went through, a lot of times I'll hear complaints about Landstar. The rates just aren't as high as what people are just pulling off the load board. And part of the reason for sure. that is Landstar understands this concept and they don't try to screw sure. all their shippers just because they can. They could go in and raise rates on a lot of their freight and probably get away with it during those times. But the, on the other yep. side, what we tend to see is in the downturns, the BCOs at Landstar tend to do better because they've got it. Landstar's developed a better relationship with their shippers to try to mitigate the, the big highs and the big lows for everybody. Just stay more consistent. Uh, I, I, pull this freight. Yeah, I think. Go ahead. I think you're 100% right. I think Landstar's done a very good job of that. And if you're leased to them and not running under your own authority, I think they're a, a really good play. If you have your own authority like I do and you're a small carrier, you have to do that diversification yourself. Yes. Don't rely yep. on Landstar to do it for you. And, and so that's, that's essentially what I've done. You know, like I said, we had a great direct customer. Still do if I want it. It's still there. Right. I can step back into that anytime I want. Um, and everybody's happy. I was clearly communicating every step that I was making, and they understood why I was doing what I was doing. So there were no hurt feelings. I didn't burn any bridges, and I just thought it was super important to diversify, uh, you know, before I started to grow. Lay that solid foundation so if something happens, you know, your house isn't going to fall down. And um, to me, that's what Schneider is. That's just a backstop. And like I said, we've made some good connections. I've learned a lot about how their system works. That's going to be valuable moving forward, I am sure. Um, you know, is Schneider the place where I would be to make a kajillion dollars? No, but it's very consistent. They, they pay their bills. They're rock solid. And it's, 
it's a good part of the plan. Here's another way to look at this. You know, we, I use the phrase all the time that pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. And it, it, it's used a lot in the stock market to say, don't get greedy is what we're really trying to say with this. A lot of people would look at what you were just describing in your operation and saying, when I have multiple trucks, I'm going to keep a percentage over here at Schneider, no matter how good it gets. And some, if you were, that's, that's thinking like a pig, you can get fat with that thinking. But if you thought like a hog, Mm -hmm. you would say, Hey, if rates are good, let me just pull all my trucks over here, run this really high paying freight, and I'll just keep an eye on things. When things start to go bad, I'll go back to Schneider. Well, the problem with that thinking is you don't have the relationship now. By leaving that, some that trucks there and... and thousand. Yeah. You're, you're so spot on with that statement. You don't have the relationship. And that is what's so critically important when you're in an operation like Schneider to have that relationship where both sides trust each other in order to make a go of it when the downturn hits. Yep. If you have to try to rebuild that relationship, say you're there, you pull out, you move your truck, what do you think they're going to think when you come it, back? Exactly. Well, you, you, you pulled out on us once, <laughs> you know, so That's are right. you going to the top of our list? Hell no. That's right. Um, so, yeah, no, you're, you are so spot on with that. And, you know, to me, that just screams. And I know a lot of people say Schneider's not, not my customer, but that they are. They of course they are. absolutely are. Yeah. And, um, you know, their, their feelings get hurt when you, uh, you pull out on them. Um, and they, they should. like that. No, right, right. That's exactly right. And uh, so, yeah, I, I fully plan on maintaining that relationship that, that we have. And like I said, we're learning stuff and opportunities are popping up within Schneider that, you know, some of the stuff is really good. Some of it, yeah, not so much. So you right. can pick and choose and you, you work with the internal brokers and, and uh, you can definitely make a go of it over there. Um, and, you know, having them in the mix, I think is just a, a really, really great thing for, for my company. Yeah. You know, you know what a lot of you know what a lot of people do is uh, they they get them a rate and then they keep looking and then they can find them a better rate and they'll take a crap on their customer well they don't think it's their customer and they'll drop the load to chase a higher rate well I've made I've made that known to the people I haul for that once I take a load I it, until it's delivered I'm not looking because if it was good enough for me to take then it's good enough for me to to continue on and, and, and fulfill my end of the deal. So to your point, um, we do a very similar thing with our girls at Schneider. You know, we tell them, look, you know, we understand that there are going to be some loads that you need help on, and we are more than willing to help, you know, but we've got to balance it, and they understand that. And I'll tell you, there have been times where we have taken loads at a number that worked for us, when they call us and say, hey, look, we found something that pays better, we're going to switch you off this and put you on this. You know, and, and they're actually doing it for us, but we don't have to call it and drop, <laughs> drop the bomb on them. Right. So, I mean, that relationship building is so critically important. I, I've had similar um, happen to me. I've, but, where it, it, I picked the bad load, I picked the load, and the guy that he retired with Hey, hey, Mark, I'm not sure what happened to your audio. Come, come back to your phone. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. 
Uh, we just lost that line. I have no idea what was going on ah. with his audio there, but it wasn't good. Um, a, a, along these same lines, Joel, before we go to another call, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the groups that are screaming for all the broker transparency and they're not our customers and they're screwing us and uh, on and on and on. They got into a back and forth. NOOA got into a back and forth with one of the financial analysts at, uh, at DAT. And he was just okay. doing what financial analysts do. He was just posting data. Data is there to help us. Uh-huh. It's a business tool if yep. you know how to use it. And all these guys wanted yep. to do was was fight with him about how the data is not right. It's not accurate. It's being manipulated. Where where did you get this data come from? Why why don't you? It, they were actually complaining about a private company that puts data out to help people. And for a lot of this data, they don't charge for it. They post these reports so, all over the place, and you don't even have to pay for it. You just go read it, and you actually learn something. But instead, these guys got into this pissing match with them. And it got so bad, James Lamb would actually started a poll and a petition, and he wanted, he thought Dat should fire this guy. Because of of the data he was putting up, that's his job. So he so, d- he dug into this data and produced a nine page report about how about broker margins and how much they're really making on these loads. And it turns out, mm-hmm. just like we've been saying for years, just like every year mm-hmm. when um, the TIA reports this number, broker margins across the board run between 13 and 15% every year, year after year. It almost never changes. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. That, and, and that makes sense. Um, my thought is, and, you know, I get crucified on data as well, so I'll put together efficiency data and stuff and people will pick it apart and they'll talk about this and they'll talk about that. So my thought is if these people understand and know this is faulty data and they know it's terrible, why aren't they producing their own data and putting it out there and saying, here's the real list and here's why it's accurate. You're right. That that is a very good point. If you know this is wrong, then tell us what's right. That, that would be the best solution to this whole thing. Don't yell at somebody when you think they're wrong. That's kind of what I done. I went out and I, I get a data set. I prove my data. I post it for everybody to see. They can bitch about it, complain about it, accept it, whatever they want to do. But if you truly believe, or not even believe, if you know, and it sounds like that's what they're claiming, they absolutely know that this is faulty data, put your own data together, publish it, and explain to everybody why yours is more accurate. People are way more likely to follow you at that point rather than just out there bitching about how the data is not right. Yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly what, what's going on here. And their, their one attempt um, was such a joke. They, they cherry-picked one load from a broker wouldn't post all the details about it and tried to claim that um, the broker took a 46% margin. Well, m- maybe you they did. find that. M- maybe yep. they did. It, yep. it could happen. I wouldn't argue. I don't think this load was actually, I don't think that was accurate. There were, there were expenses in there that the broker covered, lumpers and some other things that 
um, almost positive ended up coming out of their percentage. So it's not true that the broker got a 46% margin. It is true that the carrier only got 54% of the load. That's a true statement, but you can't correlate that Mm -hmm. to the broker got 46%. I think the broker paid the lumper and some other expenses. That could very well be. Um, Here's here's my thought on this. And look, I I don't try to save the world from brokers, so I... I'm not super up on this, but if this is as prevalent as what everybody says, um, the groups that are opposed to this should have no problem putting out the accurate data, grabbing a thousand loads or so that were charged at 46 or 47 percent, whatever they're claiming. They should get at least a thousand. You would think. It should be fairly easy to do if, if this is such a problem and explain and show all the details on this thousand loads what happened at that point hey i'll follow you i'm all for it you show me why the data is bad present your accurate data show me the fraud in detail i got no problem with you then yeah i agree all right let's grab some more calls let's go to south carolina this time paul welcome howdy hey what's on your mind i got a list well i I got kind of a list now but like brokers a lot of the broker fraud I think it's actually done by transport companies because it's like, oh, this this company, this broker's got five loads. We'll take them, but we can only do two. But we got some buddies that can do it, and they fish it and they farm it out to them. So I think hey. transport companies are half of the problem because a lot of them they're not brokers; they're just transport companies. You're exactly right. Freight freight fraud and and broker fraud is being committed by people with carrier authority just as much as with broker authority. Yeah. So, seeing we had that cold weather and all the electric car problems, come up with a joke for you. So there's this small (laughs) business guy up in Chicago, and he, he shows up to work, and none of his employees are there. And a little bit of time goes by, and the first employee shows up, and the guy says, You're late. He says, Yeah, my electric car ran out of juice. I had to walk the last two miles. Okay, well, get to work. A little while later, another employee shows up. What happened to you? Oh, my electric car. The, it wouldn't charge, and I ran out of juice, and I had to walk the last four miles to get here. Okay, carry on, get to work. Third guy shows up. You're late. What happened? Oh, my electric car ran out of juice. I had to walk six miles to get here, but I'm here. And about two hours later, his last employee gets there and he's like, let me guess, your electric car ran out of juice? He said, I don't have an electric car. Well, how come you're late? And he says, I got a gas car, but there's a whole lot of electric cars broke down everywhere and the road was blocked. I couldn't get through. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Yeah, we're we're waiting for the electric snowplow and the electric tow truck to help us. Yeah, well, there you go. So on that on that video you posted this morning where you adjust the weight onto the drive axle, mm-hmm. is that a stand is that a standard feature on the six by two, or is that an option? Yeah, yeah. No, that is standard. Uh, all six by two trucks have what they call electronically controlled suspension, and that is the secret sauce to the weight biasing. Um, Volvo also now has a smart 6x4 that can bias weight, and it sounds like on the 6x4 version, which I I may be possibly getting one of these, um, 
it is going to bias weight to the axle that has a built-in in the locker on the axle, and so we'll be able to do some weight biasing on a 6x4 as well. Oh, okay. So I I went and saw the Volvo dealer in Oklahoma City, mm-hmm. and um, both of the Volvo guys were out that day, but I talked with the Mac guy, but he sounded mm-hmm. very knowledgeable. He said he'd sold Packard product, Peterbilt, Kenworth, and he'd gone to Volvo, and I said... I got a VIN number for you, but I'm on a day cab version with a long frame. And he goes, big sleeper truck, huh? I said, yeah, of a sort. <clears throat> so uh-huh. I sat down and discuss, and I told him I wanted the iTalk of VNL. And he's uh, like, yep. he's like, you know what a VNL iTalk's like, right? He said, you're not going to win a drag race. And I said, yeah, I know that. And I said, but as they're fueling up, I'll drive by them and I'll win the race in the end. And he says, oh, hey. you're going for fuel mileage in the yeah. And he said, okay. He said, There's, and he asked what I had now. And I said, 600 Cummins, Peterbilt 388. And he's like, this Volvo is going to be way different than your Peterbilt. And I said, yeah, I understand. And he's like, okay. So he sounded quite knowledgeable, but he said, when are you looking to buy this truck? And I said, well, next year. And he said, okay. He said, because that's probably the lead time you're going to need or maybe longer. He wanted 100 trucks last year. He got 45, and he said, getting a, a long wheelbase day cab, he said, because a lot of the big companies, the red ones, the white ones, the gray ones, he said, they snatch mm-hmm. up all the day cabs they can get. And he said, so this is going to be hard to get, but he sounded kind of knowledgeable as yeah, to what I was doing. Yeah, shop, shop around with other dealers. Um yeah. One thing that just really kind of infuriates me when they, they talk about this, well, that iTorque's not going to win any drag races. What happens when you put it in performance mode? It's just as fast as the traditionally geared truck. Yeah, yeah. well, uh, maybe it, it, have a full it, understanding yeah. about it. But, but I, I, <laughs> no, it's, right, it's, but it's, it's, just, it's, it's irritating because this is, this is one of, they want to oh, sell yeah. a truck that they think they can resell to the Cowboys. And so they don't really want to sell you that iTorque because they think they're going to have a problem reselling it because they don't mm-hmm. understand that it is very capable. And it just, yeah, well, it's just, I don't know. We still need some training, I, I guess. <laughs> I, I don't, we need I don't a lot really of training, Joel. Of, I don't mm. really give a shit about the resale value. I'll keep it. And I'll, when I retire, it'll retire. And if anybody wants me to give, give any money for it, they'll get it. But Yeah, I, yeah exactly. I, I've, been, I've been riding around in this truck for nearly 11 years, so... Chances are I, the next one I get will be re- my retirement truck. So uh, yeah. I hear you. Gotcha. So, but then he's like, you know, you're going to have to have a big fat deposit to put down on this truck. He said because a truck like that, he said, it's, it's not the sort of thing that we can. Oh well, if you back out of it, now we're stuck with it. Then, oh, we just sell it to <laughs> right. okay, yeah. or whatever. So yeah. So but all right. I, I'll, I started somewhere. So. We'll see what happens. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Hey, we've got uh, we've got Henry and Alec with us. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Good morning. You know the story he was sharing that goes on and on. I run into that all the time, especially when they had to were really pushing the four hundred seventeen fifty, which had more horsepower down at a lower RPM than the higher horsepower one. It was more yes. than enough to get the job done, but.
Yes. When, when you got to the dealers and they're worried about the secondary market and the resale value, and oh my gosh. And I'm like, have you, any of you ever gone over to like MPG Masters? There's actually people converting their trucks to be six by two. And you have, <laughs> and you have a six by two that you don't know how to get rid of. You should connect right. with these people. Right. It's unbelievable. Right. Yeah. And, and on that point, um, when somebody backs out of a deal, these ITOR specs are gone. 48 hours. These are very hot commodities. So the fact that the gentleman in, uh, on the Mac side in uh, Oklahoma City there, I think he's, Paul said that, uh, you know, he needs to be a little bit educated on, on actually what's happening in the marketplace. Because I know here in Denver, those trucks are gone instantly uh, whenever they happen. They're, uh, they are starting to catch on. So it's good to see people are starting to understand, you know, the multiple yeah. gears at highway speed and the, and the benefit and advantage that it brings. And, and so it's starting. We still got our hardcore people out there that want the, you know, the 370 rear axle ratio. And it's also very, very important for people to understand that you cannot do this with all the brands. A Detroit or a Freightliner and, and Volvo are the two that are the most aggressive with this. Uh, Cummins and Packard, not so much. So just like back in the day when people would make the mistake of walking into a Volvo dealership and wanting a Cummins spec, the same is going to be true just in reverse. So somebody's going to walk into a Packard dealership and want a Volvo spec, and then that, that's not going to be pretty. And so no. people have to under, understand exactly why they're doing what they're doing. Attractive effort calculations are key here. Don't just pull rear axle ratios out of thin air because somebody's doing it with a 2.16 with a certain brand and think that's going to apply across the board. It will not. That's right. And people need to understand that. Well, Joel, adding to that, it's funny to me how many people and dealers alike that hung up just on the gear ratio without taking in the overdrive ratio, the size of the tire, everything. Oh, it's I remember cr it's crazy. Uh, yes, number of years ago, of course, just about everybody with a 12 speeds a .78 overdrive, and I remember this one dealer. He was so excited, and he had a pretty big order of trucks and I'd stopped to visit him and, and he was really excited that he sold his first automated manuals and, and a pretty good number of them and I looked at the specs and they were 342 <laughs> gears with a .78 overdrive. I said, what are these guys going to run, 50-55? He says, why well, I always yeah. use 342s. I said, with a .73 overdrive, not not this deal. Uh, anyway, Correct. So, they, so one they thing had a that's massive re-gearing project. For everybody to understand, and Kevin, I, I think you had mentioned this at, at one time, and this is absolutely true. This is physics. It is not brand specific. Horsepower always determines how fast you go up a hill. Rear axle ratio only determines what gear you're going to be in in the transmission. And that's, that you can apply that to all brands. And so, like Henry had mentioned, when you have a, a lower peak horsepower engine with high torque, that just means it makes more horsepower at low RPM. And, you know, you got to wrap your head around that because if you miss that fact, you're going to gear mm -hmm. a 500 or 600 horsepower big block Cummins to run at low RPM. It's going to be a dog. 
and it's probably not going to be good for the engine as well. So be very, very careful when people just tell you to go put a, a 228 or a 216 with an overdrive under a truck without doing your homework and understanding that power curve. You really, really have to understand that. You know what? This is That's another. Right. There was one I, I was putting together out in Denver, out in Alex's neck of the woods, and he was wanting to put together a 41750 216 at the time. That was the hot ticket. And mm-hmm. they told him he's not going to be get over the mountains. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, right, exactly. And you're like, oh, geez, yeah. here we go. You, you know what? This is another you know, example two, of yeah, two nineties. This is so the, everybody's aware here. Volvo done a, a a nice test running up Fancy Gap where they took a I Torque and they took a two four seven and I think they also took a three oh eight. I think they had all three, and they all had the same horsepower, same loads, and they ran them up the hill. And guess what? They were within a second of each other getting to the top of the hill. One done it three gears deep, one done it one gear deep, and one done it in overdrive. (laughs) And and that, you know, so you really have to understand what's going on there because the the action that that we get quite often – if you don't have a power curve and attractive effort calculation to go along with that power curve, be very wary of it. Because you really don't hey, know that what's going on. Hey, that one mile an hour is everything, though, Joel. I mean, uh, it, that, that second, one mile an hour is everything. It wasn't even a mile. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it just, it's crazy. Well, and, and so attractive effort calculations and power curves showing you where the gears are going to be at at any given time at, for uh, a speed and weight combination you have to have that. Otherwise, you're, you're just plain guessing, and that's an expensive expensive gamble you're taking there. You know what this is another example well, of? Right this now, is, with that one mile an hour you're talking about, they're going to lose. People can't even slow down for a construction zone, and now you're wanting them to slow down one mile an hour going uphill when nobody's <laughs> ahead of them? I mean, <laughs> come on. Well, what are you thinking uh, about? Is anybody hearing me? Uh, <laughs> you are... Yeah, I hear you. Okay. All right. Because no. I kept trying to jump in, and, but, but, but and it, was, it was like nobody was hearing me. This is another example of what we were talking about earlier when all you can focus on is the top line. You can't understand all these concepts that we keep talking about that affect the bottom line, what really matters. This is the same thing. For years and years, I've heard people say, oh, you can't use that gear ratio. You won't even get up a hill. Well, wait a minute. Why are you only focusing on one factor when there are several others that play into this? But they, they get focused on that one number and think that somehow the rear end ratio alone matters. Well, it only matters in conjunction with all the other specs. Well, yeah, it's one, not only that, flat, piece Kevin, of the most, of the, most of the country's flat, and where it's not flat, half of it's downhill. So going uphill is the least thing that you do in any given day. Pretty much, so why yeah. Why would you put that much focus on the thing you do the, do the least of? Yeah. It might be the most memorable, but it's what you do the least with the truck all day, and it gets the most focus. There you go. All right, we're, uh, we're going to grab some calls because they're piling up on us here. Let's... Uh... Let's go to Alabama. Matt, welcome. Good morning, gentlemen. What's on your mind uh, today? Got all kinds of things I could talk about. I'll start with um, on Tuesday, I think you had a call. Yeah, it was from Charlie. He's uh, something about Ifton. I forgot what it was now. 
Um, but my point was, I've, uh, I'm going through my third IFTA audit since I've had my own authority. Hmm. Henry, I believe you've been through one, haven't you? Oh, yeah. I was through a lot of them. Yeah. In one case, they went back through three years of them. They were going to find something, but they didn't. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This time, it's just one quarter, whereas the previous two times, it was two or three quarters, but they weren't never consecutive. It was, you know, one from two years ago, one from the previous year. It, is it, isn't it funny that they always say that those that they're random? But I oh, said, yeah. I, got, I was North Carolina at the time, I said, and at the time, I was above nine model the gallon, which was a big deal. I said, what? Was it random of all the trucks in North Carolina that are above nine miles of the gallon? You know, that, that, that was that, I think that was the randomness. My, my opening letter said that the state is required audit one percent of all. Oh well, yeah, it's randomly they just choose one percent every year. <laughs> I seem to get it a lot. Yeah. But I don't. I do less. But uh, yeah. So the reason um, I'm bringing that up for Charlie and Jerry, you know, he said he was. They got all of each other. Um, it's been doing a long, long time too. Is record keeping site and just using your GPS does not qualify. Yes, it records the accurate miles per state, but you need more detailed record keeping than just a GPS. And anybody that has their own IFTA, the rules are right there either on the state's website or even on the quarterly. I think they, they explain it all. Got it. So the next subject, uh, talking about business, uh, last week, Alec, you uh, brought up your fuel percentage cost, and mm -hmm. it, it's pretty cool that you guys and myself are one-tenth of, of a cent per mile, 15.1 <laughs> and 15.2, well, so. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I would... I, I, Matt, I was thoroughly disappointed to uh, to come in second, um, but, <laughs> but I, I, if I recall, you had $270,000 of net profit, which, you know, that's a bewildering number in and of itself, so um, I dare say we're lower than that, so, you know, on, a, on an absolute dollar basis, I think we're okay, but um, oh, you had some yeah, impressive I'm numbers in your own right. Yeah. Um, what I would love to hear other callers do is call in with that percentage. Um, I know uh, <laughs> yesterday, Kevin, well, yeah, there's not a whole lot to have it. Um, right. Yesterday, Kevin had Hoffman, and you had his numbers. You never got into them because you ran out of time. But uh, and I know Don's very good at keeping up numbers, too. But. The other segments, uh, I've talked to Paul about this, and I don't know if he's got his year numbers in yet. Now, obviously, a car hauler, their revenue per mile is higher, their fuel cost is higher, but when we measure it on percentage of revenue, it really doesn't change that much if they're running a decent operation. Mm -hmm. Potentially. Uh, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. And that may, I mean, compare your operation with ours because we, uh, well, I don't, I, don't, I don't even know if you haul a drive-in or not, actually. You're a dedicated reefer, isn't it, Matt? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So there's a lot of similarity of our trailing equipment. So to compare on a comparative basis of revenue with what you're doing and what we're doing makes sense. 
uh, to compare to a car hauler might not make sense other than if somebody is evaluating whether they want to stay in a car hauling operation or move to something else. Um, yeah. My friend Rob, is, he hauls agricultural, and sometimes we'll compare numbers. And uh, that's really not a, a just comparison unless somebody wants to say, hey, I want to get out of hauling ag and I want to get into drive-in or something like that. That's where that conversation can happen. Right. But um, you know, there, there are... Comparing, you know, your operation to a car hauler is doing a car hauler potentially a disservice. Well, I guess they're not going to compare, but um, they want to be either last. There was a couple years ago, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't Paul, but another car hauler that can call into the show, and he's asked me not to repeat his numbers on the air. I won't, but. Um, Joel, you know him, and, and Paul knows him real well, too. I think you met him, I believe, the last year. But mm-hmm. he was within 2% on people. Nice. That, mm. that year, I was like 16, and he was 18%. And I mean, his, his gross revenue per mile was almost double mine. Mm-hmm. But, sure. You know, as long as, uh, that would be, I guess, my recommendation, or what I'd like to hear from other people out there is, how many people are under 20% for sure? I think should probably be the high side on fuel cost, unless you're in a certain certain duty cycle that you know it's more fuel demanding. Um, you know there are exceptions out there, but I think anybody under 18, I would definitely consider them doing good. Yeah, no mm-hmm. doubt. You know, and obviously 15, you know, at least in my opinion, is probably the top end. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think you're going to see much better you know, than that. Hey, Matt, you, you bring up a good question. So because your fuel cost is so low, are you, are you hauling cheap freight? <laughs> oh, <laughs> say it to too. some people, yes. <laughs> oh, shoot. Well, I was gonna the say thing is, I know, earlier well, I know darn well that the, you're uh, not. The, the high-paying freight and then, you know, the relationship with the customer and your brother with his trucking company, that just makes you lucky, yeah. Joel. You have that yeah, right, opportunity. Yeah, right, right, right. Of course. That's of it. Of course. <laughs> of course. All right. We have got to move along. The calls are piling up on us. Thanks, Matt. Let's go to New Mexico. TJ, it's your turn. Hey, what's happening, everyone? What are you up you to doing? today? Oh, uh, just uh, driving my old motor coach back to California. You're, and you're, uh, mm. speaking of that, these these coach repair shops are terrible. I don't know if you guys know that or not. <laughs> oh, but, well, hey, yeah. hey, TJ, welcome to my world. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it was it's just four, repair shops in general. Yeah, it was at Four Travel. That's for sure. It was at Four Travel, which is a factory, right? And I had them do some work to it to the tune of twenty-one thousand back to pick it up, yeah. and it, I didn't feel like I got my money's worth. They like it was it was it was a uh, fiberglass repair and uh, you know some paint, but they basically just fixed the spot that was broken, even though we talked about the rest of it that kind of needed some work. And so they had it for like nine months. I was waiting on a paint appointment, right? So if you're waiting on a paint appointment for nine months 
or six months or whatever. Like, well, God dang. I, and I didn't hound him. I probably should have hounded him. If I would have stayed on him, I would have got some pictures, and I would have looked at him and said, whoa, why don't you guys do a little bit more? So they basically just fixed the one little spot, even though we talked about sort of cleaning up the coach, you know, to sell it or whatever. And then so right above it, where right above the accident portion, they didn't even touch it, and it just looks terrible. The back of the la- the ladder on the back got crushed, and they, and I said, well, just take that off. I don't need that. I got a collapsible ladder, and I'll sell the ladder with the coach, no problem. And so they took the ladder off. They didn't fill any of the holes with, you know, they didn't bond bondo any of the holes except for the two holes where the repair was. Right, so they repaired the you know the light in that section, and they fixed those holes. They didn't bond them. I mean, they bonded them and painted them and made it look nice, right? But right above it, where the rest of the screws hooked the ladder on, they didn't take any action. No phone call, no email, you know, nothing. So they're hey. they're just like doing the bare minimum. Hey, TJ, um, I'm gonna yeah, I, I'm gonna I want to one up you here. So first off, I, I will say that the um, Country Coach Factory has been some of the best service work I've ever had. I've been totally satisfied with them since I bought the coach. They're the only people that have ever worked on it other than myself. It either goes back to them or I do it. And always happy. You don't even, I won't even talk about the price. Their rates are high, it's expensive, but I don't care because the work gets done, it gets done right. Up until this last time. Now I had the same exact experience. My coach was in there 10 months I was waiting for a, a paint appointment that I never got. I didn't get any of my paint work done at all in 10 months. I probably could have pushed them harder, but I wasn't in a big hurry to get it out anyway. So that the time wasn't a big deal. What was a big deal was several of the things they did, and this has never happened before, I had to redo. Stupid stuff. They uh, Two new air conditioners and... One, old, one, the air conditioner was leaking into my slide and causing all kinds of water damage, and the other one just wasn't working at all. They replaced both air conditioners because they said even the one that was just leaking, it, it was a bad air conditioner. So they replaced them. When I got on the road, both of them were leaking. One night, I wake up, and I'm like, why are my legs soaking wet? And it was because <laughs> the air conditioner above the bed was draining down onto the bed. So I had to take that apart and fix it. Just a simple little clamp issue is all it was. But now I got to tear the thing apart to fix it. The other air conditioner, same thing. They didn't route the drain line right. So I had to tear into that one and fix the drain line. They, they worked on my door, the, the entryway door, and obviously never tested the electronic lock. They, they tightened everything up so much that the electronic lock doesn't work anymore. You have to use the key, and it's really tight. And I almost couldn't get into it this weekend because it was freezing. So now i got to tear that door apart and fix that. I've never had to, to redo their work. In all the years I've owned this, all the years they've done it. Now, my bill altogether on this time was $72,000. And yet I still had to fix a bunch of little stuff myself. But that's brand new. It's never happened before. Yeah, this, um, yeah, the servicemanship are, is just kind of fading. Um, and I understand their dilemma, right? They're trying to – it's the same thing we're all trying to do, right? Get, get good employees, you know, while the government undermines what, yeah. you know, that. Yeah. Uh, but 
Uh, I mean, I'll switch the conversation because the coach talk, man, it could go on forever. <laughs> um, but so I'll switch back to what Matt was talking about and this fuel percentage of revenue. That's the way that I've always kind of did it, but it bounces around with your revenue. Right. And it also bounces around with like the rules for your equation. So I have my brokerage and it gives all the money to my carrier group, right? And we just, Instead of doing it load by load because we're LTL, we just do it at the end of the month. We just allocate 85%. We just give 85% of the the brokerage revenue to our carrier, that, you know, that I own. If if that carrier handled it. Now, if the um, if some outside carriers handled some of it, well, then that doesn't get. We don't include that revenue. Um, so it's kind of like it's like sister companies or whatever. Um, so the percentage revenue on that 85% of the big bill is um, is 20% exactly for the year last year. So so my fuel cost is 20% of the carrier's revenue, which I don't. TJ, it's not good, right? That's not very good. Go ahead. Well, first of all, you know that that data you threw out there is going to be investigated because it's probably faulty. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm oh, yeah. sure it is. <laughs> you know, I'm sure you're going to be investigated for putting false data out there. But 20 percent. Now, when you're when you're in a fleet situation, just keep in mind you you are never going to approach what the small guys that know what they're doing. It's it's you're never going to get there. So my thought is is that that 20 percent is probably actually pretty good for a fleet. Um, I'll chat with my brother and see if I can come up with his percentage if he's willing to share it and then you'll have something to kind of benchmark against sure. and uh you both will actually because you know you're very similar size wise i think and and uh it would be uh it'd be kind of a cool comparison sure so um, let's see what i can do on that right on um the the other thing i did kevin and team as i i and neil and i were talking about well okay well what are the rules for this right and i got to thinking so my bro and when i do it to my brokerage when i do my fuel expense to the hundred percent of revenue, pretending like I'm hauling all direct freight. I guess you would say, <laughs> right? Like, so right. then it drops it to sixteen point five percent. Wow. So, but but then you have to think though. I don't think that's the right thing. That, 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 that's not the right comparison because who on earth gets that luxury of comparing it to sort of the total revenue? There's so much sort of overhead and outsourcing and it's it's a big it's a big ball of wax to sort of compute so anyways somewhere in there between you know depending on how you calculate it it, it, it would be 16.5 to 20 percent because like the car hauler thing or the mat revenue thing like the, it's completely different because like you might be getting a, a, a huge amount of revenue but yet maybe uh, hey, you know maybe it's not flowing it doesn't all flow it never all flows through to the carrier to the truck right or the truck or the carrier i'm going to make another correlation TJ. here and and why a yeah. lot of people struggle with these issues and why they're fighting about well the numbers you're putting out about rates and brokers that's not accurate and they, on and on and on and part of the problem is exactly what we're describing here Anytime you start looking at numbers, the first thing we have to determine is what criteria are we using. And we can use hundreds of different options on how to look at any set of numbers. And these guys don't understand all the nuance. So when they look at a data set, they, they, you, you can't describe to them 
how and why this data set was put together this way. And if they don't understand it, then they just think it's wrong or, or somebody's cheating. So yeah, that's true. When a, poli- oh, go ahead. when a politician, when a politician says <laughs> the subject is complex and nuanced, you know, we automatically think, okay, they're pulling the. <laughs> In transportation, that's actually true. I mean, it is it true. Is how you interpret data, I will interpret something completely different than Alec will interpret it, and TJ will probably be different than both of us, and none of us are wrong. Right. That's correct. Think about, think about that. Yeah. That's correct. Does that mean somebody's a crook or somebody's trying to rip you up? No, it doesn't. It just simply means you had a different interpretation of what these numbers mean. And that yeah. is very, very common, when you, especially when you get into the engineering side of things. You know, I, I, I sat in with a conversation with a combustion engineer, actually two combustion engineers fighting over, you know, where, how many milliliters of diesel fuel, X, Y, Z on a chart. <laughs> it's just they were interpret things differently, um, you know, and, but boy, what a debate, you know what I mean? Right. And, and you, you have to understand that, that yep. there are, there's more than one way to skin a cat, and it is absolutely true. So, yeah. there's so no, these guys at NOAA, these guys at yep. NOAA, they actually mm-hmm. made headway with me last night on the Twitter space, they took, I, I, they're rebuilding their trust with me barely. Okay so, okay, so check it out. The way he described it last night, this is your breaking news update. So, <clears throat> so <laughs> one of the guys from NOAA contacted Ken, right, Adamo from DAT, in that post that we're all talking about, right? Right. And now he claims that he's working on the back channels with DAT and showing them, and he provided all his rate cons in a certain lane. So... So Ken took those rate cons and then started, you know, doing work, right, crunching some some data or some numbers as he should, right? So what he's stating now, the way I understand it, is that the DAT1 side of the trucker's edge or of the DAT, I think it's called DAT1 now, but it's what the truckers see. And there's a whole different side of what the brokers and the shippers see, right? And I don't know what they call mm-hmm. that side of DAT. And this is where... Kevin, you, I've heard you say this many times, right? These truckers aren't using all the tools that are available on these load ports. We know Correct. that, right? They're just going to the highest, highest rate per mile, highest rate, and that's all they do. Okay, so, but what, the way it sounds is it enlightened Ken as well, according to Noah, right? That they're, the data points that they're, that they're taking are only the data points that a broker or a shipper gives to them. And I thought, okay, well, that's, that's cool. We can know that that's from the brokers. But what they're also saying or what they're also claiming is that they're only giving them like six out of 100. They're only giving them like a very small percentage data points back to DAT for analysis. Okay, so, so let's just say 1,000 loads move in a certain lane. The, the, the rate on that is coming back in a very small percentage as to what those loads were closed at. And the carriers, the small carriers, are, are non-existent in their representation because no, no, none of the small carriers that haul the other 90-whatever percent of those loads are turning in their rate cons to DAT to prove sort of what they hauled it for. So it's, it's, it, DAT is not purposefully colluding, well, but they're accidentally providing 
invalid data. Wait right? a minute. That's cool. Private companies do whatever you want. That's cool. And you don't have to trust the data or whatever. You don't have to look at it. But you could, I could see a case where if that is putting data out there but not receiving in, you know, more data or enough data or good data, or if they're cherry-picking the data or the shippers and the brokers who have an interest in cherry-picking the data, because they would, they would have a great interest in cherry-picking the data and then sending it out to, or sending it back to that because they know that's going to put the third, you know, it's going to affect the 30-day average. It's going to protect for, um, it's going to highlight this, this data. So, I don't think it's obviously not purposeful collusion, but it, I think it might. It could end up being accidental. Well, wait but a minute. Not to worry. They're working on it. Hold on, because we've yeah. got another data set that we can use to say maybe what they're saying is true. They're only reporting back a small percentage, but that's how we do all polling. All polling is done by a small percentage, and then you extrapolate out. And we have another data set to prove that even though it's a small percentage, it's still accurate. And the data set, again, it has to come from the broker side, but they're doing it a different way. The TIA does a survey of their brokers every year, and they ask for all of their financial data, like a P&L, and they dig into it and put out the percentages again. So, so now we're looking at the data in a different way, but we're coming up with almost the exact same percentages. TIA has reported for years, I read the report every year, what broker margins are, and they're not doing it from load data. They're doing it from a P&L. And that P&L tends to show that the numbers are right around 13 to 15% every year. So That's there's got to be somebody out there that, that kind of aggregates all this stuff together in regards to the specific issues that we're talking about here. They take this company's numbers that are gathered this way, this company's, you know, there's got to there's be some cross collaboration of, of the data sets, I'm assuming. And that's kind of what I think Kevin is trying to explain here, that this is, is it's cross verified and the numbers are coming out fairly close. You know, I, I don't probably well, I don't follow this the enough to get coming, really I, I don't deep know into that the, the numbers weeds are coming out close in a lane specific okay. sort of way. Right. So th mm -hmm. let, let me say what I think should happen. If the Owner Operators mm -hmm. Association, the OIDA gave a shit, they would collect information from their owner operators and feed it to, da to Data One. Yes. Good point. Feed it yes. back to hundred uh, percent. Very good point. Because because if the shippers and the brokers are providing their data points and it's cherry picked, it's instantly you should not use that data. If one side, if you only got Democrat pollsters producing the data, you should just throw it all out. Yeah, because yeah. you need another, you need a, you need a conservative pollster to give his six percent. I don't have a problem with them only giving six percent and extrapolating it out, but you need six percent from the right and you need six percent from the left, and that's where I think there's a, probably a disconnect. Now, I just opened that one to take a look at some my lane, right, Texas back to Cali. And there's all kinds of, like, really high-paying loads on there right now. And it looked like it's floral and beef and something. So I don't know what's going on right now in the marketplace. 
but just mm-hmm. on the side note, I'm like, oh, let me look at these and see what, how, you know, because usually I, everything's on there for like $2,000. The 30-day average is showing 2552 back to California, right, $2,500, mm-hmm. you know, back to Cali. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and oftentimes I don't, I never get to the 30-day average when I'm negotiating with these brokers. Now, that's my, partly my own, my own fault because of over time all these brokers know that I'll, I'll always haul for a buck a mile or whatever just to get my trucks repositioned mm-hmm. under my, you know, you know the whole hey. thing there. Sure. Um, hey, TJ. But, yeah, so, so I, just, I just wish Owner Operators Association would feed some data to back to um, DAT and truck stuff. TJ, here's another way to think about this, though. I, I, I believe that if we got more and more accurate data in real time, more than likely happen is it would actually bring rates down. I, I think the more transparency there are in rates, the more opportunity somebody has to just slightly undercut somebody else. And then the next person knows the rate, they slightly undercut it. I think that's a race to the bottom. I think if we ask for better data, we, it might be one of those things, be careful what you wish for. Think about this right now. The, the people we're talking about here, um, you know, Joel and Alec, their, their operation, Henry, your operation. You guys understand that the data is complicated. You, you got to work at trying to interpret it. There's lots of different ways to interpret it. If we make that really easy for everybody, it actually takes away an advantage for the really good operators. Uh, yeah, you're you're right to a certain degree. If 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 that uniformity is what you're talking about, is that the the prices will come to a uniform price across the board when you flood the market with data, and if you're very good at you know, like Alec, he'll take this data, rip it apart, analyze it 17 ways to Sunday. Not a lot of people can analyze it down to the granular level like he can. So that takes away an advantage that our company would have. Right. I, I, you're, you're not wrong. Um, I, think in the I just don't know how it affects the overall market. So spot market and contract I, I think, would be different, right? So spot market, it might cause a bit of a race to the bottom. But remember, there's two people in every transaction. So the, Absolutely. the, the broker system, in the, you know, and if we're trying to democratize things, you know, spread things out, decentralize and democratize, hey. like that is a good idea, generally speaking. So, yes, some people will get, um, will have um, advantages taken away because of it, but in aggregate, everyone could potentially well, do a better job. And yeah, that better yeah. job might be just driving rates to where the market price is supposed to be versus, sure. you know. Sure. And at the end of the day, so, so. if it is a race to the bottom initially, what's going to happen to capacity as the market falls out like it is right now? We're we'll lose yeah. capacity, mm-hmm. and the market will move. The rates will recover. Um, and exactly. it, it won't stop the market from moving, but there will be an adjustment, I guess, is the, is the best way to describe what you're talking about. There will definitely be an adjustment if you flood the market with, with data. Absolutely. Yeah, so, so what's happening in my business? Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, so I, I think you're all right, except that you're assuming that the rates would fall. So it all depends. If the market is backwardated, meaning that there's a excess capacity, uh, then yes, the, the, if you flood the market with accurate data and there is no advantage, you know, for example, we would have no advantage over anybody else, then yes, markets rates would drop. Uh, but conversely, when capacity is constrained, or demand exceeds capacity, rates are naturally going to tend to, to rise. Sure. And so 
Um, so the difference is, so, so the market, uh, the, the, the rate could go up. The difference is the, our margins would go down because everybody has the same data. There's no greater insight that I would have over, you know, somebody else in the marketplace. So the margins of the market participants would drop, and that would be a very bad thing. So when everything gets commoditized, um, you know, margins drop. And one of the things that Kevin said, I think, really well last week is if you if, – if everybody has the same information and there is no difference among the participants, there is no competitive advantage. Looking at data and figuring out where markets are, or, you know, sure. The availability of backhauls is a great example. When we go in certain markets with with our dedicated freight and we have to come out, you know, I protect where we get those loads zealously because I don't want people to know what we're doing on our backhaul. Um, you know, that is a competitive advantage that we have. I don't want every Tom, Dick, and Harry to know what we're doing. Um, so, uh, I don't anyway, so I, I guess... Recreate it. <laughs> what, what's that? I, 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 challenge, I said, I don't mind because my business can't really be create, recreated so easily with terminals and infrastructure. And, you know, I can't, right. there's no one you over have, at England that could... There's no one over at England, no matter how much money they throw at it, could sort of do what we do anyways. But people could do what we do. Now, they may not want to do it, you know, LTL and I'll give my, my right, uh, you know, a lot of people don't want to do what Joel just did yesterday, and, and Travis, I mean, you know, we talked about uh, exploiting your um, your uniqueness in the service of others, and my, my team did it yesterday. You know, they drove in snow all day long on glare ice and snow and everything else. And we still were early making our delivery this morning. So um, if you the, – the point being, I guess, that is a competitive advantage to, that I think we have that I would zealously guard. I don't want fungible data. I want, you know, uniqueness. And either people can choose to do it or not do it. That's up to them. But um, by doing – things that other people are unwilling or unable to do. You know, we talked about unable and can't or won't, you know, that sort of thing a few weeks ago. Um, you know, those are things, so data, being able to do things that other people don't want to do, exploiting your uniqueness, these are all keys to survivability in a very, very tight market. Exactly. Yeah, and I think it's just, just exactly what we had just talked about earlier, Kevin, you know, um, essentially, I went from specialized freight to commodity freight for a safety play yeah. in order to establish my, my foundation. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. If you have a huge data dump, it essentially is going to commoditize the majority of the market. Um, there will be some specialty stuff like TJ has, and, and he'll reap the rewards from that. Um, so, you know, you got to be careful what you wish for at times. To me running a business, you believe in yourself, in the individual, not the group, and you you play to your strength as an individual. And, yeah, that, and that's that's how you succeed, I think. Who really benefi- benefits if, if all this data and the freight's all commoditized? The, the beneficiaries are the big carriers, the mega carriers that do everything on tiny margins, and it takes away the advantage of the small guy. Yes, economy of scale options will benefit, I think, much more than 
the small guy that should be running on an efficiency style operation than if they're just running on the lifestyle type operation, they'll just be done. They'll be yeah. out of the marketplace yeah. um, for the most part. So, yeah, I, I agree. You get enough transparency. That's all true, but if the megas and the big brokers are controlling the data right now, if they are, I'm saying big if, mm-hmm. big if, but if they are, then how, is it, how does it make it better for them if – they're highlighted as doing such. Yeah. Right? Like right now, I'm going to negotiate harder against these guys just because I'm like, okay, well, I'm not really trusting that 30-day average. I'll just, I'll just pretend that that 30-day average isn't there, and then I'll, you know, I'll start way above 2,500, right, or something like See, that. This is one. This is a trick that a lot of people do when they analyze data. They say, okay, look, this data set skewed, and I just add 15% to whatever that data set says. See it all the time on fuel mileage stuff. You know, when we're we're looking at certain numbers, they'll say, "Yeah, but this was recorded in this certain way." So we and and that's a, probably a damn good strategy that you're talking about doing right there. You're just yeah. going to add X amount to whatever they say it is because you think the data is skewed or you have reason to believe it is, and and uh, nothing wrong with that. Yeah, that's why I love LTL because LTL takes it. it, it not everybody's willing to do it. There's a load post six thousand dollars back to cali but it's got eight mm-hmm. drops but like i don't mm-hmm. care about the eight drops if i got if i can especially if i can bring it back to my terminal and slide it in a, you know eight different trucks <laughs> it doesn't matter <laughs> yeah, that's like, right right cross that. docket yep 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 absolutely Good so stuff. we just absolutely. took uh, two broker loads and combined them on a return load how about that sure ah, look sure at that. sure yeah absolutely yeah I'm sure I wasn't supposed to say that out loud, but I love creating havoc. Isn't did, didn't some didn't some broker carrier come out this past year and start calling that um, like shared capacity instead of LTL? Oh, probably they love redefining things. Yeah, sure. yeah. Somebody came out and said we are the specialist in shared capacity or something like that. And I'm like, what the hell are they talking about? I the and then I realized they're just talking about LTL. Here's wait, the best wait. story, Kevin. That means Kevin, the very they are sharing story. in my. I was going to say they, <laughs> Go that. That just means that they're sharing in the use of my capacity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, hey, so I'm negotiating LTL with the shipper, right? And he said, "Okay, is, this What's is that? a shipper. This is I'm negotiating LTL with the yeah, shipper." Yeah, I'm going to go up there and go right in this one. And then a, executive, this executive is like high level, wide open, right there. Huge multi-million dollar company. And he said, and, I, and I'm saying, I'm going to quote your three-quarters of a truckload, um, you know, at this price. It's basically a truckload. And then he says to me, how about this? How about I buy the whole truckload and I sell that extra space back to you? And my sales guy and I, we almost fell out of our chairs. What? So said, for clarity's sake, we said, okay, so hold on. So you're going to pay for the whole truckload. And then if there's some extra space on it, you're going to sell it back to me, the owner of the truck, trailer, and driver? Like, have you lost your mind? <laughs> no, you're not going to do that. Well, what that means is own... he's, yeah. He's, hey. yeah, so he's still only paying for three quarters or whatever the fraction is. Yeah, exactly. TJ, yeah. I know what happened here. Your, your customer is uh-huh. sampling his own product. All right. Exactly. He's smoking it. Yeah, he had to be impaired to to come up with that thought process. Right. And and we're like that's that's a I mean that's we I mean I can appreciate that. I mean you're you you are bold, but that is not going to happen. <laughs> you're not going to get it. 
right. I got to bring Joel. I think that was all I had. Kevin, that's all I had for you. All right. We'll let you go. Good stuff. Um, Joel, I I put you back on hold because I think you were having a conversation Mm. in the background. Okay. It sounded like it anyway. Somebody was talking in the background. I was backing up here, and and (laughs) that guy was like, he wanted to pull out, and he's yelling at me, and I'm moving, and yeah. Got it. We got it straightened out, though. All right. Good. All right. Let me go back, and uh, we got to get back to the calls. Travis in Texas, it's your turn. Yes, sir, Kevin. I appreciate you taking the time. I've got a health question, if you don't mind. Sure, it's a free-for-all today. Go ahead. Fantastic. So, um, I, you know, standard American diet, 45 years old, uh, went and had my annual physical done in July, the day after July 4th, so probably wasn't the best idea. But my primary doctor, and this is the normal medical field, so keep that in mind, he did my labs and he said, hey, you need to get on a, a medication called stenofibrate. And I said, well, I'm already on two blood pressure medications. <clears throat> Hold off. Let me see if diet and exercise can fix this. And so I've been listening to you and I started keto slash carnivore. And over the last six months, I've lost 45 pounds. Feel better, feel great, feel like I'm making good progress. I went and got a second opinion from a local cardiologist, and the cardiologist just called and said, hey, your lab improvements have been great. Your numbers look great. Wait, wait, wait. But hold, I'm really hold, concerned. Hold, hold on a second. We need to take a step okay. back. You, when, when okay. it's phenofibrate, right? I think so, yes. Okay. It's, with, it's from high triglycerides, you said. Right. Triglycerides are cholesterol. You, when, when you mentioned this, you said I'm already on a high blood pressure medication. This is two calls in a row where doctors were kind of confusing high blood pressure and high blood cholesterol, two wildly different things. And here's the reason why that's important. I'm all for lowering blood pressure to get to a normal range. That makes sense. I am 100% against trying to lower cholesterol at all. We should not be trying to lower cholesterol. Low cholesterol is not healthy for human beings. It causes all kinds of problems. So I'm against statins because statins lower cholesterol and cause all, all kinds of other goofy side effects when we shouldn't be trying to lower cholesterol at all. Phenofibrate is another method of lowering cholesterol, not blood pressure. So when you're, this other doctor says the results are good, he's saying that because the cholesterol numbers are coming down. I think that's the wrong approach. I don't want to lower my cholesterol. Okay. Yeah, I don't either. I didn't think so. I didn't think so. That's why I got a second opinion. And then the, I was a little amazed. The cardiologist started the, he started the, the conversation congratulating me on it. Wow, you've made some great changes. You've lost 45 pounds. Your labs are looking a lot better. But I want to put you on Crestor. And so I quickly Googled that. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's a statin. He goes, yeah, but it's only 10 milligrams. I only want to do a little bit. I'm like, yeah, let me hey, get a second, another opinion. Well, so that's uh, stop, hold you. on a second. I, I'm going to go back. Because, again, these ignorant comments. Um, fentanyl. Yeah. It only takes two grains, the size of grains of salt. Two grains of fentanyl will kill the average human being that doesn't have a tolerance. So to say it's only 10 milligrams is a completely ignorant statement. 10 milligrams of what? 
that, that it, it, it's completely meaningless to say it's only 10 milligrams. That has nothing to do with anything. I, I thought the same when he recommended Crestor and said that. So it, uh, my, the, the, the problem here is you got a second opinion, but you got a second opinion from the same system. They're going to agree with each other. Exactly. Go get a, go, so go get a third opinion from a functional medicine doctor and find out how different it's going to be. Okay. And would you also recommend the NutriQ? I saw it on your website. Yeah, absolutely. I can tell you what it's You're going to score horrible uh, on the NutriQ because okay. you're eating the standard American diet. Everybody who does. Now, once you change that diet, then you'll see real results, not in some random number. What you're going to see real results in are symptoms. This is why we use the NutriQ and not a lot of testing that gives us random numbers. Because the doctor looks at your cholesterol numbers and go, look, this is awesome. Our drug did exactly what it was supposed to do. And he's right, but that didn't make us healthier. My guess is if, if I find somebody who's not on a statin and we have them do a NutriQ, it's probably going to be bad if they eat the standard American diet. If they went on a statin for six months and did another NutriQ, the numbers will be worse because their symptoms will get worse. The, the random number that the doctor wants to show you will get better. But if you don't feel better, then what's the point? Yeah, that's why I love this carnivore. I've been on it for six months, dropped 45 pounds. I've got about another 60 to go and I want to continue it. I love Good. the cardio miracle and uh, that's why I want to do it this way. For the functional medicine, it sounds like, and not traditional, then, traditional medicine. Here's what I would say, and this is my approach. With functional medicine and eating the proper food, I tell people don't even check your cholesterol. Don't look. It doesn't matter. Good. Because I feel great. <laughs> That's, that's, Outside of that call. that's far more important. That's what we measure in the NutriQ, not a bunch of random numbers. We measure how you feel. Awesome. That's what I needed to hear. I will fill that NutriQ out. I appreciate it. Good stuff. Thanks for the call. Let's, uh, let's go to Wyoming. Rod, welcome to the program. Hey, how you doing, guys? Good. What's on your mind today? Hey, Rod. Hey, Alec. Uh, well, this is for Henry. I've got a buddy of mine dragging him, kicking him, screaming into the new century. He is right. he's been a Peterbilt guy. Uh, he's looking at trying to go with an aerodynamic truck. He's looking both used and new. He likes, as much as I try to push him to a Volvo, he won't do it. He wants, if he goes used, he's looking at the 5700. New, he's looking at probably that 4900 or whatever it is. And I actually got him talking to you, like your specs on the 4900, but on the used truck. How about my spec? What's that? How about my spec on the 57X? Uh Tough to find. That's what my question was going to be. We're seeing a lot of, from what I'm helping them look for, everything it seems like we're finding is either 308 or 285. Yeah, that's common. I'm assuming, the 280, I'm assuming the 285 is with an overdrive transmission. It's an assumption, but right. which I figured would put it comparable to the 228. How would that truck be? It's okay. I call the 285 and the 228, I call that tween. It's not really right. far enough to take advantage of downspeeding, and it's far enough that it doesn't end up being a real good puller either in high gear. So what I found with the 228, it hangs in there a little bit longer than like a 216 will, 
but then when it downshifts, you're too low the next gear down. So I've labeled that gear set team. The, uh, so, because his, his operation, just to let you know, he runs step deck primarily out of the northwest. And he's usually, okay. he is usually loaded, fully loaded when he's leaving out. Um, or he's, like I said, he very rarely has he got less than 35,000 pounds on the deck. And he's hoping to get I, I, If he's not in a big hurry, that 285 will work fine. And but. he doesn't. I mean, Jim typically runs 63 to 65. And if the wind's blown, like this last trip coming home, he was fighting the wind, he was down at 54. He goes, I'm just not going to push my truck that hard. So, so if, if I was him, I'd be, I'd be looking for the 216 in the direct. If you were doing that, you might find right. one of them. I or the uh, 264 with an overdrive. If, if. Which those are the two I told him to look for. But like I said, trying to find them is tough. And from no, it is. Him. Now, if he because if he if he buys new axles, like I said, I've actually got him talked into the 264s with a lift axle. Um, so well, you can't get that from go, the factory in the Western Star right now. Oh, you'd have you to go Freightliner. Okay. There's okay. Well, I'll let him know that. Um, Unfortunately, like I said, I'd love to get. I'd love to get him in a mobile because I've had such good luck with mine. But that being said, he's an adult. He can do what he wants. Um, all I'm trying to do is figure out best gearing to help him look for. It. I just had somebody call me the other day on the 228 deal, or the 285, which is the same as the 228, and it's common. And what the dealers have done, and Joel, I'm sure you see this, they want to go one gear ratio set at a time to get the marketplace used to the next set of gears. Well, there's some that just need skipped over, and in my opinion, that was one of them. But going all the way to the 216 was too big a jump for people's minds. You're exactly right, Henry. I think the dealers want to try to, you know, kind of ease it into the market. The problem is a, a lot of customers will get hurt doing that. You, you have to rely on the data and the, and the numbers and, and understand right. what they're telling you. Yep. I mean, if you told me it was a northeast truck, I still, with a truck that just stays in the northeast, where the average speeds are much lower, I still am a big fan of the 241 Direct if that's where you run. But where he is out in the Midwest, no, he'd be served well by a 216 if he could find one, or a 264. Being uh, open deck and a little bit more aero drag, I'd probably lean towards the 216 over those two combinations that he could find. Because okay. the 264 makes you like equivalent to a 205, and he's not going to be aero clean. Right, exactly. Because that's what my, I mean, my Volvo, that's, I have the XC with two. 264 is an overdrive, so I can kind of give him ideas as far as ranges there. Also, um, also step deck, I'd, I'd lean him towards mid-roof. And that, I told him, I said, the 5700 he's looking at has the roof cap you take off. I said, if, and I wish I would have done it differently, I bought a 730. I go, if you think you're going to either start maybe pulling van power only or go to a Conestoga, Get the air, get the condo, and just eat the fuel mileage now. I go, if you have no plans on doing those, get the mid roof. Because I told him, I said, you've said about four tenths of a mile per gallon. That's right. I thought so. That's what I told him. And I did tell him that. If he's bound to determine and winds up with like a 285, just 220, how do you think that would do efficiency wise? What do you think would be a number we should, he could shoot for? In like a 20, on probably a 2020, 2021 model year. On, on step deck, I have a guy that runs the Midwest on locomotive parts, 
not a step deck, but a flat deck, pulling a Conestoga with a midroof, which he wasn't planning on doing a Conestoga when he got his midroof. And he hovers right around that eight mile to the gallon range. Okay. And I told him that he would probably be, my guess was seven and a half to eight. So I was pretty close yeah, to that. In that neighborhood. Where is he now with what he's running currently? Uh, five and a half. You know, that's he's a pretty big a, jump. He's in an 05 uh, 379 with the Acer. I mean, and when he's looking at the stuff, put as much in his favor as he can. Like, you don't want the stacks alongside the cab. Right. As my one friend from Pennsylvania says that made all that switch from that stuff, when he sees stuff like sun visors and all that, he's like, let it go, let it go. It's in the past. Let it go. Sure. No, I, I agree. And hopefully he does. I mean, he waffles back and forth, but this time he was actually down talking to dealers and being out there at the Freightliner in uh, Sumner, talking to him, getting financing, trying to get financing set up. He just is trying to make up his mind whether he wants to bite the bullet and go brand new for a hundred. Because he said he'd be looking at about 180-ish is what the dealer's telling him. And as opposed to on use, he's looking in the 80, 80 to 90 range. And being So many people want to put old, their toe into it. What's that? And it sounds like many people that I've talked to, they want to put their toe in first before they jump all the way in the pool. It reminds sure. me of a guy that I worked with in Colorado that was making that switch from a jacked-up cat in a 379, and he kept nipping around with stuff, and finally in the conversation I said, look, where are you wanting to go with this? Are you jumping all the way in, or do you just want to put your toe in? He says, no, I want to go all the way in. I says, well, then let's forget all this stuff. Here's what you need. And he did it, and it worked. Sure. And that's what I'm trying to get him to do. Um, whether I can talk him into it or not, I don't know yet. But I'm trying. Well, All right. I just wanted to get what it's worth, if, because if you contact sorry. me on private message, I'd be glad to put him in touch with some people that made that switch. The one came out of a 379 with, you know, seven, 800 horsepower cat and all jacked up. And okay, perfect. He doesn't yeah, want to go I'll back. Definitely, I will definitely do that. Um and I figured I'd wait to call you today because I knew you would be the person to ask because I don't understand the Volvo. Like you guys always talk, there's differences between Volvo and Detroit. And I know that I could help them pick gearing for a Volvo. I could do it on a Detroit. There you go. All right. We got to move along. There Calls are piling up. We're going to go to Illinois. Jerry, welcome to the program. Well, good morning, fellas. And I told Morgan I might be in Missouri, and I am. I just crossed into Missouri, but that's okay. So. We, we'll still talk to you. Yeah. Oh, damn, you got a hell of an echo, Kevin. We'll get through it somehow. I have a question for Henry and Joel both, or both of their setups. It's a two-part question. The question is this. What is your drop-dead cold that you would not idle your, or that you would idle your truck instead of shutting it off, number one? And the, and the second part of it is, is what auxiliary heat do you use? And at 20 below zero, if you did shut your truck off, would it keep you warm? Henry, um, I'll take it first. I, 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 I don't idle no matter what. It always keeps me warm. And even before I had that, I remember... Before I had the, uh, well, they call it the dual HVAC system now, but it used to be called ParkSmart. It keeps the engine warm the whole time. keeps me warm. I, and even before that, I didn't idle. And I remember my old Sentry when my Series 60 was minus 28. It just started up, and I was sleeping on a 12-volt heating pad. So I, I have no 
time that when I would do that. And okay. if you also want to go uh, into one, Joel, answer your part. But let's also go sure. into how long would you let it warm up? Yeah, we'll sure. Um, so so um, <laughs> I I done this with one of my D11 several years ago. I was I was up in the northern Minnesota area at a small truck stop. It was minus 42 actual. And uh, I shut the truck off for the night. The guy sat beside me says, oh, you shouldn't do that. I said, that'll be okay. He goes, no, it won't. And I said, yeah, it will. So he's up early getting his jumper cable out. <laughs> I fired that truck right up. It's fun right over started. So I'm kind of like Henry here. Um, I don't know that there is a time when I really wouldn't shut it off. And, uh, you know, I, I have faith in the things that we use that, uh, you know, as far as, the fuel treatments that we use, that it's not going to gel up, and I'm not going to have a problem that way. And the synthetic oils that we use, that the engine will crank, and and uh, mm-hmm. so I'm I'm uh, I'm pretty well with Henry on this one. Uh, I I can't think of a time when I wouldn't shut it off. All right, but does Joe? What, what's funny? I saw the subject come up the other day with people talking about. How long would you let it warm up when it's those temperatures? And they don't realize by letting it sit there and warm up, you're actually harming the engine more than just driving it. Now, obviously, you don't go out with your foot to the floor. So on the Volvo system, you can go out and put your foot to the floor, but the engine's smart enough where it says, no, you ain't going to do that. So it'll limit horsepower, limit fuel, limit all that stuff until the engine's at operating temperature. So you can do that. Um, As far as do I have a hydronic heater on this truck, I do not. On the D11, I did not. Uh, On my previous truck before this, I did. I loved it. The hydronic heater works great. Um, I'll probably end up with a hydronic heater on this um, because it it does help with emissions when you start in the cold, even Mm -hmm. though the engines will start down that low. When you have hydronic heat, it really reduces the emission load when you start the engine cold. So um, okay. I think just that's, from that standpoint, right. the hydronic heat makes sense. But even when you were in that drop shop at 42 below, the heater you had in your cab, whatever it was you had, kept you warm enough? So I had a, um, I was in a, a VNM at the time with a 61-inch mid-roof sleeper, and it had the Arctic insulation package. And when you pull the, the center curtain, um, I just had the little forced air underbunk heater um, S-bar. And, uh, yeah, it would it would keep up with it. Um, okay. When you poked your head through the curtains, it was awfully cold on the other side, but back where you were sleeping. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I was just curious if there was a drop-dead temperature that either one of you would idle. So. And, and especially, Joel and I think we'd agree on this, especially when you have solar panels, because the colder it is and the brighter the sun is, if you, you know, like in the morning, the more the solar panels actually put out. So you got plenty of battery charge. That, that's not even an issue. All right. Yeah, I, I, in I our would case. tend to agree with you on that. Yep, absolutely. Yep. Let's go to Tennessee. Keith, welcome to the program. Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Hey, I put a, a, a roof wind deflector on my Volvo truck. Um, okay. I was, mine was a MIA or didn't come from the factory with one or something. I don't know. Do, but, do you mean like a whale so, tail kind of thing? No, no. It's the Volvo. It's a factory Volvo okay. uh, wind deflector. Okay. You know what I'm talking about, right, Joel? 
sure. Yep, absolutely. Black one with the two aluminum rods that come down and stuff. So the the, tr- the trim tab on the back. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Got right. it. Okay. Yep. So I'm running a pretty good size trailer gap because I have uh-huh. a uh, gas generator on the back. Mm-hmm. So I got it. It's a factory Bobo <coughs> wind deflector, right? Um, it did not come with directions about where to mount the bracket, the adjustable bracket. You know, you mount it on the back of the cab so you can raise the wing up and down. Mm-hmm. So I did my, what I thought was like common sense of how to do it. So mm-hmm. I got the, the wing up there, the top mounted properly, the bottom, I pretty much guessed that. So what I did was I took a uh, two by four from the top of my trailer to the edge of the wing, mm-hmm. the closest to the trailer and uh, made the wing level and the two by four level and then marked that adjustment platform, right? So sure, uh, I'd have some room to go up and down with it. So I've, I've got it in set in hole number three right now, but according to the sticker they gave you, right, between the gap between the back of the trailer and the back of the truck, which is 51 inches, or the front of the trailer and the back of the truck, and then the height of the trailer, and then the other one from the frame to the ground and stuff. I did all that. It said to put it in hole number two, all right? But at mm-hmm. hole number two, it was slightly lower than the uh, level two-by-four, and I used the um, the short side of the two-by-four, you know, like the one. 135 or one three one and three quarter side and i flipped the two by four over just in case of crown i measured it mm-hmm. both ways to make sure it was level so i've got it set at number three and that puts that back of the wing level with the top of the trailer right that that is how i prefer to run it uh i did have this discussion with one of the the aerodynamic uh, chiefs at Volvo, and he would tell you to do the number two hole to keep it a little bit lower. But then he told me, you know what? At the end of the day, if it works for you, he said, roll with it, <laughs> because because it's just an opinion. <laughs> I don't know that that little bit of difference with the gap that you're running is going to mean a, a whole hell of a lot. I, I really don't. I, I know overall it's going to gain you about a percent. To a percent and a half, which is extremely hard for people to see out in the real world. Normally, you got to get a three percent gain before you can clearly see it. It will improve your fuel efficiency, regardless of where that that gap is at. Um, so, do what makes you happy. Just, on this. Well, so, just my, it, it just don't help as much when you're that far away, is what I found. That's true. That is true. Yes. Okay. Yep. So if you. Like, if I was to pull in and park next to you, and if you looked at my wing, you'd look at it and go, man, that looks like it's way up in the air. So I was looking uh, at mine it. Looks, mine, mine looks that way. <laughs> okay. Mine, so, look, mine looks just like that. Everybody says, hey, your wing's too high. Eh, I like it like, like that. So that's where I roll with it. <laughs> okay. So, so that's what I was, I was wondering about. And then as far as the gap goes, um, I can't get it any closer without the trailer hitting the generator, and I got it tucked up as tight against the back of the cab as possible. And it was just a money situation, you know, fourteen, fifteen thousand for a thermo thing versus, you know, a, you know, nine, seven hundred dollars for a generator that runs everything. And that generator saved me uh, tens of thousands of dollars already. So oh, I've yeah. only had it for like uh, just under two years now. 
So you can uh, imagine what fuel price is. Uh, now, out of curiosity, are you are you pulling your own trailer? No, see, I'm pulling a company trailer. I, I'm, right. I'm uh, leased on to Mercer up there in Louisville, but so I do get different trailers and stuff. But I just they're most of them are the same. They're all most of them are uh, Great Danes. But we do have a couple Hyundai's and a couple of uh, what's the one that starts with a V? I forget. Well, we do Vanguard. Have a, yeah, Vanguard. We do have a couple of those too. So it's you know sometimes I got skirts, sometimes I've got top kits, sometimes I have both, sometimes I don't have nothing. So you know, it's that isn't where I was going. If you were pulling your own trailer, I was going to say to get your trailer gap right, put the generator on the trailer, not the truck. Right, and that's what I would do for sure. It'd, it'd make a lot more sense. And uh, being a gas generator, I'm afraid to hang it below the truck because uh, the way this particular mm-hmm. valve is set up, it would have to go in between the DPF and the uh, fuel tank. And uh, I just afraid that that DPF is too hot to have gas move anywhere near it. I mean, even if I put a heat yeah. shield up, I just don't. I just don't feel comfortable but- doing that. There's a space that I've wanted to use for a while that doesn't get used very often on a truck, and if you had a good enough enclosure, it would work. And and the area that I'm speaking of is below the frame rails on the back of the tractor. Okay. That, there's a good space there. That's where I keep wanting, especially now that I'm on a 6x2 liftable pusher, that's where I'd like my four extra batteries to be right across there in a box because there's right. nothing there. Yeah, that would drive make shaft. sense. This, uh, no, he's There's talking no about all of back there. So, but it another thing I how far back. Up, so I've I've talked to you guys before about putting two forty sevens in this, and so what I figured I was going to do instead of doing that because I'm already you know over eight. I went from you know the low sixes to um, the high eights in the summertime, and even this winter I'm still maintaining uh, seven and a half plus. So I'm doing pretty good, I think, with all the improvements I've done to Air Dog and the Fleet Air Filter and, you know, everything else. So I'm thinking the next step is to put the flow below on it and um, then from there decide whether I need to put gears on it, in it or not. <clears throat> it's a 308 gear with this uh, I-Cork, uh, or not I-Cork, uh, uh, 12-speed I-Share, you know, D13. So what do you guys think? Well, I've I've done that change. I went from three and a quarter to two point four seven. If you have an air dog and you do, you know the the air dog whole change possible. Otherwise, you're kind of limited at two point six four. But two point four seven. Oh my gosh, big smile on my face because I could run in direct uh, in the hills, and when I'm in the flats, I could run at two point seven. Not quite mastering what we have with purple haze but you know it it, it was a nice step forward um you probably gain almost if you don't adjust your speed and um you'll gain a full mile per gallon the nice thing you you will adjust your speed because you can so there'll be opportunities like joel talks about where you have the versatility where if the economics justify it you can run faster uh, without That's getting right. killed in terms of its fuel economy. Um, so here's, but you don't have to. But my question a, another, is, I know the 247s are going to help me out a lot. My question is about the flow below system. 
instead of, I mean, for now, because that's way cheaper than changing out the gear set. Sure. So yeah. here's something to, to think about and to consider. Um, the flow below makes sense. Um, when you have a truck and you add aerodynamics to it and you have more traditional gearing, you have to remember that mechanical drag is exponential just like aerodynamic drag is. Mm -hmm. So you'll put the flow below on with 308. You may or may not see uh, a gain. The aerodynamics are proven. It will help to increase your fuel efficiency, but because you have a higher average piston speed, and you, you're not going to get the full benefit of the momentum potential and, and all the things that we talk about when we, when we start to downspeed an engine, um, you may or may not see the benefit. When you do re-ratio it, you're really going to see a, a kick in the butt then. I would put the flow below on. I don't think there's, there's any doubt about it, but there's definitely a connection yeah. between that, that gearing and aerodynamics. When you put aerodynamics on the truck, what you're doing is you're creating a situation where it requires less horsepower going down the road. When you okay. have a downsped powertrain, you can leverage that advantage through reduced RPM. When you have traditional gearing, you are stuck in that top gear at essentially whatever the RPM is for any given speed. You don't have any choices to take full, of, full benefits of that aerodynamics. So um, put it on, and then when you do re-ratio it, you'll definitely see the bump then. You may not see it with a 308. And, and adding to what you're saying, Joel, one of the things I like about flow below and actually every aerodynamic device I've ever put on the truck, everybody talks about the fuel mileage side and the, and the reduced drag. There's another important factor. To me, it's the safety side. Your visibility generally goes up each time you improve your aerodynamics to where I basically just don't have road spray for the most part now. I noticed that yeah. when I put the air tabs on the truck, it made a big difference on my mirrors and stuff, how much I could see behind the trailer, especially when it's really raining out. So Yeah, I, I agree with that, Henry. I, I think what you're saying is true. Um, the traditional gearing is, is, is just not going to allow you to get the full benefit out of the arrow. The benefit will be hidden until you until you uh, actually swap out the gear set. Then it, it'll really pop for you, I think. Right. I'm running 60, and that's like 12 and a half, I believe, maybe 1260. I'm going by the factory RPM. So, and that's an overdrive all the time, as you know. So. <laughs> yes. So just as, a, just as a general rule of thumb, for every 100 RPM that you drop, you gain a percent and a half in fuel efficiency. Okay. Okay. So, you know, when you go to 247 overdrive, you're going to be dropping that down to, depending on the speed, at 60 mile an hour, you're probably going to be at just under 1,000, I think, okay. or, or right in that area. So you're dropping 250 RPM, so you're looking at three, three and a quarter percent gain on, on your fuel efficiency that you have right now. And, and then if you have any aero modifications that you've done, that comes into play as well at that point. So yeah, you'll definitely I'm notice it. Yeah. I've gained a, you know, almost, well, over two, two miles a gallon by driving slow, the air dog, the fleet air filter, the air tab, centromatic, you know, everything that you guys talk about, I've done. And mm -hmm. it, it's worth, it's paid for. You know, my fuel bill is a lot less at the end of the year. And uh, I awesome. tell you what, that uh, 
fleet air filter really made a difference because, like, with the paper air filter, if you stuck your head up to the those vents on the on the hood, you could hear the air stuck being sucked in. But with that fleet air filter, if you just walk by it like a foot away, you can hear the air being sucked into that engine. So mm-hmm. I think that made a big difference, also. I would agree with you. All right, good stuff. We uh, we're going to wrap this up for the day. Anybody have anything they want to close with? Yeah, I do. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Do your homework, people. Um, just just do your homework when you're when we're talking about brokers, when we're talking about efficiency. You know, education, education, education. Do your homework, research, research, research. Don't don't rely on groups of people or the government to take care of you. Um, you know, if, if you're an employee driver, that's a whole different circumstance, and and you know maybe the government should be doing some things to to protect your paychecks and whatnot. But as a business owner, you know, to to me, it's about the individual and and you know ex- exploit your your talents and and leverage leverage what you know and, and do your homework and. And uh, I think you'll always be better off in a free market when you look mm-hmm. at it that way rather than let the government come to bail you out or a group of people that may or may not know your operation. They may not know anything about what you're doing. They just assume that their version of reality is universal, and it never is. Well said. Who else? Uh, 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 I'd like to add that, Joel, did you, speaking of homework, did you ever get your homework done? I have been so friggin' busy. We clocked 11,000 miles in two weeks, and I'm just the ready to go home. It, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's the right. Dog. There you go. And, and, now, and the I other did, one. I did that, listen to the Cliff Notes part of it. I did listen to that part of it. And I had started listening to this once before when Kevin and, and uh, John were talking about the book. So I had started it once before, but I just got so slammed I didn't have time to do anything. But hopefully that's the other thing I'd like to add is please slow down so I can get home faster, people. Uh, uh, I'm getting ready to go through this construction zone in South Carolina where the lanes are narrow and wobbly and trucks and cars want to come by at 75, 80 mile an hour. And there's enough crashes here that end up holding me up that they build a wrecker yard right next to the highway to collect it all. Yeah, that's Slow bad. down so we can get home faster. <laughs> when you sit for three hours, that speed you went after, we're not going to get it back. There you go. Alec, what do you got? Well, same as I thought, now is a great time because we have to you know, prepare doing our taxes. So now is a great time to do the benchmarking. For example, Matt and I were able to do earlier comparing what our fuel expense to revenue numbers look like so that you have a good handle as to how you're doing, both with yourself and your own operation, but how do you do relative to your peers? How are you doing with compared to Joel's operation, Henry's operation, Matt's operation, and others? Are there opportunities for improvement? Now, obviously, you know, everybody talks about rates of being low and detention is high and all the other stuff. You know, I think the relevant point is how you're doing you know, in a benchmarking situation because are there opportunities for improvement? The only way an owner-operator is going to be able to survive this downturn in the marketplace is through their inherent efficiencies that they are able to achieve compared to a large fleet. Fleets operate on a economies of scale model. So if we as owner-operators don't capitalize on our, our inherent efficiency, 
then we see that advantage that we have. And now you're not even able to compete with the fleets who operate, who have an advantage, and they are capitalizing on it. So either grab it or you're going to be out of business. So I'd like to see you next year. All right. Well, well, well said. Thank, thank you guys, as always. We'll do this again next week. You guys said it so well that uh, I'm going to leave it there and just say goodbye uh, and get back to dealing with this uh, crazy weather that we've got over here. Thanks again. We'll do this next week. Have a great weekend, everybody. Be safe. Be profitable. Be yep. fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey.